Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. Marx's capital looms large today, a century and a half after first publication, a massive tome that attempts to document and map out the dynamics of a society consumed by capital accumulation, the complexity and scope, as well as its voluminous incompleteness upon his death, have left many readers perplexed, looking for a royal road to comprehension. However, this has led to a number of misreadings, with commentators often trying to pick at what they assume is the core of the text, leaving behind the rest. Against this, Thomas Kempel, in his new book Marx's Wager, argues that understanding capital means reading it not just for the economic equations, but for the social and moral insights as well. Rather than see Marx's quotations of literature and poetry as an embellishment to spice up the economic analysis, he sees it performing moral and analytic work as well, allowing Marx to explore the nature of capitalism at a much broader level than narrow economics will allow. Putting Marx in dialogue with his contemporaries, particularly Durkheim, Weber, and Simmel, Kempel finds Marx's work to be much more dynamic and comprehensive than many of his readers have previously realized. This little book offers close textual analysis that will enable readers to approach Marx with fresh eyes, seeing elements of their society and themselves in the text that may have previously gone unnoticed. Thomas Kempel is a professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia. He is the author of several books, including Reading Marx's Writing, Melodrama, The Market, and The Grundrisse, Intellectual Work and the Spirit of Capitalism, Faber's Calling, and most recently, Simmel. Thomas Kempel, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes. So could you tell listeners a bit about who you are and what your work and research tends to focus on, what your main areas of interest are? I'm Tom Kempel. I am a social and cultural theorist uh, at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And my main uh, focus of research is what's called classical sociology, which I date from the social, from the early years of the emergence of the social scientists from around the French Revolution, 1789, up until uh, the outbreak of the Second World War, 1939. And I'm interested in the contemporary relevance for these thinkers today. Yeah, wonderful. And that brings us kind of right to what I think would be a good first question, which is to say, um, you're trying to put Marx's capital back in its sociological context to think about it in dialogue with um, some more classical sociologists. So I'm wondering kind of what this contextualist approach, what you're trying to get out of capital that is often being missed in your view uh, by people who come to it today in the 21st mm-hmm. century. Yeah, I mean, I th- one of the first moves I ha- that I think is really important for us to, to make that I um, make in the book is to distinguish Marx from what has later come to be understood as Marxism or all of the fancy terms that go along with it, dialectical materialism, historical materialism. Even the word capitalism was not really in Marx's vocabulary. That comes from a later generation of thinkers and activists and sociologists. So I'm trying to put Marx back into the context where he's engaged with um, fellow social scientists of his own era, some of whom we now recognize retrospectively as the founders of sociology, and bring him also, uh, uh, bring capital in particular, uh, back into the center of uh, classical sociology, particularly the, particularly the thinkers that uh, um, uh, that followed him, the, one, the, the familiar ones from sociology classes like Emil Durkheim, Max Weber, and um, uh, Georg Zimmel. But I also think of, I also take up some of the um, 
uh, the, 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 the American sociologists like W.E.B. Du Bois, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and um, Torsten Veblen. So I'm trying to bring capital into this uh, larger conversation about um, the, the core insights and themes of classical sociology. Yeah, on that note, one of the things I found really interesting or one of your really interesting ways of trying to read capital is as a work of sociology, as opposed to often it's read as just an economic theory or an economic text with some kind of embellishments from other fields. So I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to what you think is missed when it's read as just economics. You know, what are these other aspects of it doing? And what does it mean to say that it's a work developing a whole sociology as opposed to just an economic theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, Marx was not a great help here because when you read the opening passages or chapters or even the first two sections of Capital, it's hard to really see what, you know, in what sense is it sociology? Briefly, like, where are the people? Where are the flesh and blood workers? Um, they don't seem to make much of an appearance in, um, in the first few hundred pages of the book. But I'm trying to show that, that, that they're, they're very much uh, on Marx's mind and they in, in some ways take over for the rest of, uh, of Capital. And that's where he's drawing on the empirical research of his own day, uh, um, factory inspectors and, other, and his own best friend uh, and collaborator, Friedrich Engels, who did do uh, factory, uh, uh, kind of a factory ethnography um, of, the, of the working classes, particularly in his uh, father's factory in um, Manchester. So Marx is very much a, a sociologist, but one of the one of the challenges I faced was that he's actually very, very rude and dismissive about the people we now recognize as the, so the founders of sociology of his own day, like Harriet Martineau, um, uh, Herbert Spencer, Auguste Comte, and Alexis de Tocqueville. I think he does take some key insights from those early sociologists, but, um, but mostly he, he, he's inspired by um, the empirical sociology and ethnography of work uh, of his own uh, great uh, friend and collaborator, Friedrich Engels. Yeah, so building on this kind of more cohesive reading of capital, you're trying to do a central uh, other text for you is Goethe's Faust. Um, and so you spend a lot of time trying to tease out what you see as Marx's Faustian wager, um, this kind of attempt to develop a particular relationship to knowledge. Could you maybe speak to kind of why Faust is such an important text for understanding capital? Yeah. Well, you know, like most of us, um, Marx needed you know, not to spend all of his time thinking about his studies and uh, his life's work project. You know, he needed entertain, he needed things to entertain him. So he picked up the great thinkers, uh, the great rather uh, literary writers of, uh, uh, you know, in German, particularly Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Faust, but also um, Dante's Inferno, uh, Rabelais, Aeschylus, um, Shakespeare, of course, but with Faust, he has a special relationship with this great text, largely because it is in German and because it would have been something that he read as a schoolboy. He had many passages memorized. Apparently, he could um, recite them over hours or something, you know, at a, at, a, at a family gathering or when friends were around. And what I think I noted, what I think I've discovered in uh, Capital is that the very narrative of Faust, its beginning, its middle, and its end, is uh, a key inspiration for Marx. Um, and in particular, it's the aspect of the Faust story in which um, Marx is, uh, or in which uh, Faust really just wants to, he's bored and disgruntled and, um, uh, um, overwhelmed with all of his knowledge, but finds no use for it. That is Faust. Uh, so Faust really makes a bargain with the devil so that he can leave his studies and experience the world. And even as we find out, learn in the last uh, act of, the, of Goethe's poem play uh, to kind of conquer and colonize the world. Marx takes a somewhat different take on this, uh, this, what, this kind of Faustian bargain. He, um, he, he wants to use knowledge 
uh, to mobilize people, to, to inspire people. So it's not to leave the study, it's to take what we can learn from libraries and from learning and uh, from these new ways of knowing um, and use that in the surface, in the, uh, in the um, service of social change. What I'm calling Marx's wager in the title of the book is distinct from, from uh, Faust's wager. Faust does make a kind of private promise to himself uh, in, in witness to the devil's, uh, with the devil's uh, representative, Mephistopheles, um, witnessing it. The, the, the wager is to keep struggling. And I think Marx is himself uh, like a great Faustian striver and struggler. But instead of losing, instead of leaving behind, um, uh, you know, the great world's wisdom, he wants to rethink it and remobilize it for the purposes of, uh, of uh, political justice and transformation. Yeah, I want to tease this out a little more. Um, so mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time, um, obviously, talking about the kind of Faustian parallel, but you're also interested in more broadly the way Marx is often engaging with other forms of literature and culture. Um, and this would be kind of seem kind of odd if it were just this raw economic text, but I think this speaks to your interest in reading capital as a more broad kind of sociological critique. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of speak more broadly to what you see Marx doing when he is quoting, you know, not just Goethe, but Shakespeare or, you know, Dante. Like, is there something going on beyond just trying to you know, embellish the text with a flourish of, you know, a really good phrase or trying to, you know, make himself seem well read, you know, do you see like a deeper methodological reason he has for often engaging with the cultural productions that he does? I do. And I think he's trying to speak to multiple audiences. Clearly his probably his main target or his main audience are the political economists of his day. Now the political economists are the leading social scientists of the 19th century. And they're studying things like prices and taxation and the distribution of wealth in nations and so on. Um, but they're not his only audience. He's also trying to speak to uh, fellow socialists who he's joined with in um, uh, putting to, in um, forming the International Men's Working Association. So he's trying to speak to those socialists and give them some knowledge of the conditions of the capitalist mode of production, which uh, which are uh, um, you know the the kind of driving machinery of the global economy of the 19th century. He's also trying to speak to the heart and the uh, moral sensibilities of middle-class bourgeois reformers, right? He knows that he can find allies even amongst the bourgeoisie. And he also is trying to speak to workers, not all of whom will even be literate, but whom he says in the preface to Capital uh, have a great aptitude for theory. And I think his use of these various kinds of um, uh, um, literary flourishes, including these kind of like veiled or open references to a great work like Faust, are an attempt to speak to these different audiences rather than just the specialist social science audience. So usually what we find, say, when he quotes from Shakespeare or when he paraphrases, paraphrases uh, um, Goethe, something like that, he's, he's usually... Um, uh, bringing in a very humorous element, right? He's actually trying to 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 keep our attention and to um, uh, stir our emotions um, through uh, these kinds of rhetorical devices, and that's why I say they're not just decorative; they're essential to the theoretical and even scientific project of capital, and also to its uh, its political ambitions. Yeah, I I guess I want to kind of. Uh, ask kind of my own question on this. So, I mean, often people think of this as just a purely economic text, which you're pushing against. Um, I'm wondering if you could almost say, is there a sort of base and superstructure to the text itself that it's trying to understand not just the economic logic, but these sort of social and cultural manifestations that that underlying logic will produce? I think often of where he's quoting, you know, medical authority is saying it's perfectly fine for children to work in factories or for people to work 60 hours a week. Um, that's him not just pointing out the economic contradictions and the way it forces labor to work really hard, but then you have 
a society that needs to process what it is doing to itself and justify it. Do you see mm-hmm. that those as kind of connected for him in a way um, that a lot of people kind of want to assume is, you know, split or not yeah. part of the same totality? Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that comment and that observation. Um, I'll start with the beginning of, of um, your remark that is there a kind of superstructure and substructure to the text itself? Um, in in uh, the in the uh, preface to the second edition, Marx makes a, sa- a famous distinction between what he calls the mode of investigation or inquiry of his work versus the mode of presentation. So we can see we can think of that as the difference between you know like studying, working away at your notes and reading and taking. Uh, uh, um, and, and, and writing out your critiques and your commentaries. This is what Mark spent you know, a, a decade before publishing Capital doing when he wrote his so-called Grundrisse notebooks. Grundrisse means simply outlines. That's him sort of expanding on that infrastructure of the text that is the, um, the mode of research or, 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 or um, inquiry. On the other side, he has to figure out a way to present it for an audience, right? That's what he calls the mode of presentation, the fourth downs visa. So I would say that that that's that he also kind of wants to show his work as he goes along. So you know, if there's a say, as to use your example, medical authority saying you know children you know are fine if they are worked uh, twelve to eighteen hours a day, it you builds know, character, Mark, yeah. Like, it builds character yeah. and you know they, they can take it and besides what else can we do the factories will uh um will break down unless we have uh unless we employ child labor and marx is obviously is obviously going to ridicule that but he's also going to try to interrogate and investigate what are what's what are the forces um that put children women children and men uh to to uh to work at such extraordinary long for such extraordinary long hours I go even a little bit further to say that the system of footnotes that I've that I've been tracking through um, uh, through the text through um, Marx's Capital uh, is also um, and sort of a, a way of displaying that that's that substructure of the text, the work that he's doing, the investigation that he's he's carrying out and its superstructure, which is the key themes, the main points, and the organization of the text at the top. And in my own book, I'm trying to reproduce, uh, even sort of mimic or mirror some of that um, with my own footnotes. So I have a series of um, carefully constructed um, footnotes, exactly 33, which is the exact number of, uh, of chapters in the English and French editions of Capital, the last that the French being the last that Marx worked on. Um, and so I, I'm trying to show some of that work, and often what I'm what I'm what I'm um, uh, doing in those footnotes is is um, sort of unpacking and excavating some of Marx's literary ex, uh, um, inspirations. Yeah, with everything we've put on the table, I want to bring back something you mentioned earlier that Marx is writing. Uh, his real kind of target audience is English political economy, and the subtitle of Capital is. A critique of political economy. Um, and you're kind of bringing up in all these other uh, methodological approaches he has, these way he, ways he uses literature and culture to kind of really drive home economic points. So I'm wondering if you could maybe explain what kind of English uh, political economy was for him and why he was trying to bring in all these disparate resources uh, to critique a kind of very narrow conception of economics. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's not only just English; it's uh, it's Scottish, right? So, um, you know, a figure like uh, David Ricardo um, is is Scottish. It's also Irish. Um, so, William Petty, the founder of political economy that Marx thinks very high, highly of, is Irish. Um, and Marx's Marx's um, uh, he he takes he, he takes up critically and often a bit exhaustively. Um, and exasperatingly, what was called at the time uh, a kind of labor theory of value. And what I try to say is that Marx, of course, does have a labor theory of value, but even more accurately, he has a value theory or a surplus value theory of labor power. 
And even though that sounds like a pretty, you know, highfalutin or abstract formulation, it's the open door to, I think, Marx's sociology of work. The difference between, uh, and even the proportion, the, the calculated proportion between necessary labor for oneself, for one's family, for what one needs, and the surplus labor that's done on behalf and for the capitalist, for the system that helps reproduce and even help this, even necessary for the system to expand. And Marx is really, um, uh, you know, in, capital unfolds with his um, with with graphic descriptions of the blood and sweat of of workers in factories, and those are the core chapters on relative and um, absolute surplus value. And this is what he thinks this this kind of like uh, flesh and blood. Uh, uh, structure and institution and system of capital um, where where workers are ground to a halt and um, are ground ground to a pulp, I would say, and uh, capitalists are whipping them on, right? Um, that that's what he that's that's what he finds missing in the in the tradition of uh, of the English. Uh, political economists, even when some of their work is laced with great moral concern uh, for the plight of the working classes. Yeah, one last kind of introductory question I want to bring in is this kind of balancing act Marx has to perform. So on the one hand, he is trying to perform this very economically rigorous critique of how capitalist economy works, uh, but he's also trying to present it in a presentable narrative. He's, and that's part of why he's trying to use uh, all these different literary references. So could you speak to that kind of tension you see him at times kind of wrestling with of trying to find a way to present the unpresentable, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, a really nice way to put it, to present the unpresentable. Um, so the opening line of, of Capital famous is, is famous, and it's actually a self-quotation that Marx uses um, from his earlier uh, kind of uh, couple chapters, which he published called the Critique, Toward a Critique of Political Economy. So he's kind of quoting himself and he says, the, the system, I'll, I'll find the passage right here. The, um, yep, I can't find it, but the, he says the capitalist mode of production appears as an immense accumulation of commodities. The commodity, its elementary form, okay? And then he goes into this technical and really detailed analysis of that elementary form, the commodity. But the opening line is, is meant to be dramatic, right? The word he uses for immense is ungeheuer, which could be translated as, uh, as monstrous or colossal. So capitalist appear, capitalism appears as this big mass of things, right? Marx is interested in the people that are that, that make those things and the and the the system that itself requires this massive overproduction. And so capital itself takes starts with that kind of opening image. And then it sort of, for most of us, kind of loses us with this technical and theoretical analysis of, you know, how a commodity is made up of exchange value and use value and so on, before he then introduces, you know, the people who own those commodities, who exchange those commodities, who produce those commodities, and who consume those commodities, right? And then the, the rest of the text is meant to, to, uh, uh, to bring those human beings and their social relationships uh, into focus and into the foreground. And then in the last uh, sections of Capital, and this is like the last third, he's looking at the, the system as it uh, requires um, a logic of, of accumulation and even of expropriation of what he, uh, of what he and, and of an ongoing process of, of primitive accumulation even. Um, so that's sort of like the, the, the narrative structure is the, uh, just to look at its elementary form, think about how that is put together by people, how people are affected by it, and then think about the, the way the system itself um, in some ways runs itself out of control. So jumping off these kinds of introductory questions on the first couple chapters, you start doing kind of a series of parallel dialogues. You put Marx in dialogue with a few other sociologists who read Capital but in your view, we're consistently misreading it or reading 
elements of it really well, but kind of at the expense of the rest of it. I'm wondering if before kind of getting into each individual chapter here, you could explain what you were trying to do uh, or show by doing all these kinds of compare comparative chapters. Yeah. Well, you know, my original subtitle of the book was Capital After Classical Sociology, because in the end, I'm really have in mind in my sites, you know, what how, what what kind of reception or lack of reception do we have of capital in sociology in particular that's been affected by these um, misreadings or selective readings or superficial readings by the core classical sociologists, right? Um, so that's what, that's that's kind of what what my objective is is to see okay what did they see in capital what did they appreciate in it and what did they leave aside and what kind of great insights did they get through that process of creative uh, rereading or misreading or selective reading um, so that that's kind of my main objective in picking up uh, these these uh, particularly the three canonical sociologists or classical sociologists of Durkheim. Weber and Zimmel. Yeah, so to kick things off, you talk about Emile Durkheim, who does uh, spend some time studying Marx's underlying economic logic, but he moves from that to kind of try and talk about a more social logic um, and talk about what he calls social solidarity. I'm wondering if you could maybe unpack this idea and mm -hmm. what he is doing with this move. Like, where is he trying to go? Yeah. Whereas Durkheim trying to go is uh, Durkheim is very much affected by the 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 discourse of socialism of his own day. You know, he's very he 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 he's friends with socialists. Uh, Jean Jaurès, the famous French socialist of the late 1890s and early 20th century, is a good friend of his. Uh, Georges Sorel, he's in dialogue with him um, it, in in during his career. And of course, you know, they, they, they do have a, a certain interest in capital. I think it's really significant that uh, the last edition that Marx saw to print was the French edition of Capital of 1875. And so Durkheim and his fellow students and colleagues and so on are, are taking that up fairly seriously. But as I said, somewhat selectively. The question of social solidarity, which is often not seen, this, is that uh, by, by later sociologists is also a question of worker solidarity. Weber cares about, or sorry, Durkheim cares about, uh, you know, about uh, the potential for, uh, uh, for uh, the French industrial classes to, to band together. But he also has this, this kind of deeper interest as well is the, the fundamental or what he later called the elementary forms of, uh, of, uh, of social solidarity of, or of collective conscience or conscience collective, collective conscience. And so he's also looking at this kind of broader foundation of what holds and bonds people together into, uh, into social life. At the same time as he knows that especially in his first work, the division of labor in society, or even more accurately translated on the division of social labor, right? He's interested in the social character of labor. Um, he's interested in, uh, in taking up uh, some of the, or taking up the challenge or the wager, as I say, that, that, uh, that Marx posed to, uh, to social science, what holds people together, but in particular, what holds this, this new class, the proletariat together. Yeah, I, there's also a turn away from Marx's idea of where ideas come from or the relationship between ideas and their underlying material conditions. So for Marx, ideas are a reflection of material conditions, whereas Durkheim seems to think they kind of have their own logic. Could you maybe speak to the differences or where Durkheim is going in terms of method? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sometimes I think that that's overstated um, by later critics or later commentators. This idea that that Marx sees, you know, ideas and values and beliefs as a reflection of or an expression of material conditions. Um, sure, he did say that. He said that something close to that in uh, the Critique of Political Economy, uh, almost ten years before uh, he wrote Capital. Um, he says it in the he and Engels say it in their collaborative work the German ideology of a, a certain version of that. 
but I think it's overstated to, to say it's only or merely a collection. And I think that's where his work are a reflection. His work overlaps with the primary concerns of uh, the later sociologists, uh, Durkheim, Weber, and Zimmel. With respect to Durkheim, um, Durkheim acknowledges quite explicitly, you know, of course uh, there's a material substratum, a mysterious material uh, structure to all thought, to feelings, to beliefs. And he acknowledges that, but he also wants to argue that beliefs and thoughts and um, ideas uh, and, and the social world that they help to consolidate, that they have a certain life of their own, which is distinct from you know, uh, the, the basic uh, economic or material substructure. So Durkheim's gonna try to come up with a, a method, okay, in his second book, uh, The Rules of Sociological Method, um, to really make a claim and an argument for the reality of ideas. So his, the first rule of, so, of his rules of sociological method is to treat social facts as things. Okay, so social facts, which might not be, which we might not be able to pick up and touch like a pencil or a glass of water, um, but might have some kind of uh, less immediately tangible reality, those we can treat as things and they do have the power and the effect of things. So Durkheim takes a somewhat different turn uh, with with that question of like what are the what are the, the foundations of uh, of uh, of our social life in what sense are they material and what sense are they could say mental and moral? Yeah, last question on Durkheim. You find both of them responding to Goethe's Faust, particularly. Um, the scene where a young woman finds herself seduced. But interestingly, they walk away from this scene with very different interpretations or, or go in very different directions uh, with their analysis of what it really means. So could you maybe tell us a bit about that scene and what they're both, where they both go with it and what that tells us about kind of the way they diverge? Sure. It, um, it's a little bit more than a scene. It's sort of like a series of scenes and takes up most of a uh, part one of Goethe's Faust, it's the famous Gretchen tragedy. So Faust, you know, he doesn't, he want his, his the first thing he really wants is, you know, to uh, fall in love. He wants to have sex. He wants to experience the pleasures and uh, of, of the world. And so Mephistopheles finds a way to make Faust look younger, very attractive, and even give him some, some riches and then, uh, uh, this younger looking Faust seduces this young working class or you know, lower middle class uh, woman. And so that takes, that takes and, and all that ends in absolute tragedy, right? She gets pregnant and then she's, uh, uh, she, she dies in prison. Now, Marx and Engels, or sorry, Marx and Durkheim, um, they're, they're both readers of Faust. And like almost every reader of Faust, they're, they're quite captivated by this uh, story of, of uh, seduction and betrayal um, and abandonment rather. But for Durkheim, the takeaway for him is that, uh, that, that Faust can move on. He can move on from you know, uh, uh, th this very sad and tragic love affair that he, that, that he had with this young woman and go on conquering the world and exploring the world and uh, learning um, through his, uh, his um, pact with, uh, with Mephistopheles. So this is what Durkheim calls this kind of like um, malaise de l'infini, this sort of sickness of the infinite, which we experience in modernity. He calls that anomie, a lack of norms that induces this desire for the infinite, right? So Faust is always desiring, desiring, and desiring more. Durkheim took that up specifically uh, in his third book, the one on, um, on suicide, which he saw as a kind of like a, a lack of cultural regulations, a lack of, of social and cultural norms or structures which discipline and hold these desires in check. So that's what he gets out of the Gretchen story. Marx takes something similar but different, right? So the chapter on Durkheim um, is called, that, that I write on Durkheim in his uh, reception or um, selective reading of Capital. It's a phrase from, um, uh, from the way Marx describes commodities sent as sensuously supra-sensuous 
things. Now I have to you know, do, do a bit of work there and, and uh, you know, uh, follow the footnotes of, uh, you know, the German editors and so on, who have tracked that phrase to a curious kind of like uh, rewording and um, twist or rephrasing of the way that Mephistopheles describes Faust as being sort of led by the nose, right? That he's sort of like, uh, uh, he's, his, his judgment and his, 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 uh, his mission, you know, as, a, as, a, as someone striving has been clouded by falling in love with this young woman. Marx uses that phrase as an analogy for how uh, commodities kind of seduce us. Uh, they're not just, he's, he's not just interested in the, in the, the society of, of industrial production, but also in the, but also in the society of consumer seduction, you could say, commodity seduction. Um, so that that's what that's kind of the takeaway that Marx take, gets, I think, from that from that Gretchen scene. Um, uh, Marx, in the end, I think, is even more, uh, I would say, romantically, personally concerned with the plight of women and of young children in particular. And those are the people who populate most of his examples of the, the ravages and horrors of capital. Um, so I think there's also a, uh, a gender dimension to, uh, to Marx's uh, attraction to this tragic story of Gretchen. Yeah, so moving along, the next person you examine is Max Weber. So in Marx, when he talks about the imperative to work, he's talking in kind of a very raw economic sense. People need to work in order to live. Um, compulsion to work is just compulsion to not starve in the street. Um, mm -hmm. Weber is also interested in imperatives to work, but he is giving them a much more strongly moral and religious inflection. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you could maybe speak about this parallel, but the ways they again diverge where Weber is going with this. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, that surprised me um, when I started rereading Capital with this book in mind and with, uh, you know, pretty much a whole career of reading Max Weber, I even published a book on Weber in 2014, was really the degree to which they converged to begin with. That is, Marx already had a sense of, um, of how Protestant, uh, how ascetic, how self-disciplined uh, uh, the industrial capitalist mode of production is, how much it requires this discipline. And it requires this discipline, not just of workers, but also of capitalists. Now Weber's going even a bit deeper. So I think he starts from that, from that, uh, from that premise that, that Marx ex, uh, expands on in one of the longest footnotes in Capital and in a couple other places. Um, Weber himself is famous for his big, fat, long footnotes. But Weber is really interested in finding out what the cultural, religious, moral sources of that are. He, he likewise finds it in Protestantism, but in a certain reading of the Bible introduced uh, in the early days of the Reformation by Martin Luther, and then expanded on and taken up um, uh, more by later reformers like John Calvin, and then the Puritans of England, and then some of that uh, was taken up in the, um, you know, in the in the uh, the, the Protestant migrants immigrants to uh, North America. Weber says there is a distinctive kind of moral ideal imperative to work, uh, which the Protestants um, uh, which the Protestants stressed and which became really a cornerstone for the. Um, for an ideal uh, moral cornerstone for the growth of the of the capitalist order, and that's what he wants to pick up. That that's where he picks up uh, his reading and even departs uh, from uh, uh, from his reading of capital and departs from from Marx's argument, which continues on with the uh, you know with the uh, technological and uh, organizational. Uh, bases of the capitalist mode of production. Zimmel or Weber is going to focus more on these, um, these moral psychological imperatives. Yeah, uh, bringing up what you just mentioned, the kind of necessary discipline, not just of the labor force, but of the capitalists as well. Um, Weber is interested in the question of asceticism. Uh, and there's kind of a question of, uh, is 
asceticism really required? Or is this kind of a story the wealthy are telling about themselves to kind of justify their position in society? Could you maybe speak to kind of how Weber sees this and how it might diverge from Marx's more revolutionary materialist perspective? Yeah, I mean, quite, quite unsurprisingly, Marx is quite uh, um, uh, uh, dismissive and mocking about this, you know, this story that capitalists tell themselves that, hey, we're saving too. We're, we're, we're not just, you know, living high off the hog. We have to reinvest our money. And so, you know, give us a break here, right? And, and you know, Marx makes these different uh, distinctions between the, the classical and the modern capitalists, the older and the newer capitalists, and whether they're really abstaining, you know, from consumption or whether they're renouncing the pleasures of life. But all of these kind of add up to, you know, a kind of uh, Protestant asceticism of some sort. That's about as far as Marx gets. Um, Weber picks up on that and says, yeah, yeah, that's become part of the common culture for workers and capitalists, for really everybody in, in, the, um, in the modern world order, even as you know, a society of consumption emerges from this uh, ascetic society of industrial work. Um, uh, so one of the common, common uh, points of reference for both Marx and Engels, and this surprised me too, was one of, um, sorry for Marx and Weber, is that uh, uh, one of the uh, so-called socialists of the chair, this guy named uh, Wilhelm Roscher, was also later Weber's teacher. And Weber devoted one of his first monographs on this guy. And he's the one who kind of elaborates on this theory of abstinence and theory of capitalist renunciation. Um, I found that as a really interesting kind of textual overlap between um, Marx and his ridicule and um, dismissal of this guy Roscher and Weber's kind of more patient taking up of, uh, of this so-called academic of the chair is sort of like, um, yeah, this sort of like theoretical socialist. Yeah, moving on to kind of the last figure you focus on is uh, Simmel. And I really love this chapter. Um, I found this really interesting. So he's really interested in money, uh, particularly the way money uh, changes society. It's a very unique dynamic for him. It's uh, not like your 101 sociology class in fifth grade kind of taught. Um, he's really, in, he sees money as having this really deep impact, um, not just on economics, but also on culture. Could you maybe uh, speak a bit to how money affects culture as it enters into circulation? Yeah. Um First, even to just back up a bit, my method for the for for writing these chapters is to really focus on where I can uh, definitely establish a point of contact between this second generation of classical sociologists and uh, Marx's uh, capital from uh, from a generation before, and I can definitely find that in Durkheim's first book on the division of social labor, on Weber's first major. Uh, work and the one that carried him through the rest of his career, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. And then in this, uh, in this uh, third court of the central chapters, um, I'm tracking and tracing what's a bit harder to find, um, but uh, the way that Georg Zimmel picks up on themes and uh, concepts in capital in Zimmel's philosophy of money from 1900. That's his first major, major uh, breakthrough work, I would call it. So Zimmel's really trying to unpack the question of, um, of the commodity value or exchange value and what its underlying uh, cultural and sociological sources are. So the first chapter of uh, the philosophy of money is called value and price, which um, or value and exchange, excuse me, uh, which, which um, so he's picking up and trying to unpack even more deeply than Marx did the, the value question. And so it's not just economic value for Zimmel, it's also cultural and social values. And what, in what sense then are our cultural and social values shaped by money economy, by the economizing of, of, um, of money and the, the, the requirement to transform every need, every use, every, uh, every 
uh, I, uh, uh, every piece of our world into uh, something that can be exchanged for a price, right? So in some ways, it's Zimmel who, who picks up on that theme in the early chapters of Capital. But in the end, I think he's really, in the end of his career, and even already evident in that first work, he's interested in the accumulation question. That is the way in which Capital then uh, moves with a, uh, a force uh, and uh, energy of its own um, to the point of even threatening our very existence. So Weber or Zimmel calls that the tragedy of culture. And there's lots of uh, uh, kind of uh, prefigurations of that in the early work, which become much more explicit in Zimmel's later work in the last 10 years of his life. Yeah, kind of teasing this out a little more, um, he's interested in money at kind of the large sociological level and also kind of the personal psychological one. Uh, and he becomes very concerned with the way it may be kind of reorienting our psychology, our personality, where we're trying to kind of conform our identity in such a way that, you know, we can live kind of a life that is profitable or at least that we can get by. Um, could you maybe speak to this kind of individualized impact that money has? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's always helpful to work with examples. And one of the ways that I work with examples in the book and in all my books is through these diagrams that I have. And the diagrams are not just like, you know, check, connect this concept to that one and then, you know, just see some kind of word salad or uh, on the page, but to put them in the form of something that you can actually recognize. And one of the ways that, that Zimmel uh, tries to bring the, the, really the, the almost incomprehensible and ungraspable character of the money economy down to our everyday experience is through the figure of the vending machine. And I have a diagram in there, which I'd used in another, in my book on Zimmel, which was published in 2018. And I'm saying, you know, so much of life of, of our ordinary existence is calculated in terms of you know, profit and loss in terms of what we buy and what we consume in terms of supply and demand. And Zimmel, Zimmel actually thinks that the vending machine is really one of the one of the decisive technological inventions of his era. It was only invented in the 1890s, um, putting a lot of people out of work. Probably his father as well himself, because the first vending machines were uh, sold chocolate and Zimmel's father owned a chocolate factory or a, a, he was a chocolate merchant. And so it's like to be able to buy and sell things just by with the, with the you know, insertion of a coin and um, the, the, cho the choice of a selection um, is already the ways in which we are truly um, like uh, absorbed into the money economy. And Zimmel's taking those kinds of examples and thinking of how they, uh, how that changes our very culture. He takes up the example of prostitution too, a major kind of anxiety or concern for all the classical sociologists, how women in particular might be forced or um, be induced to choose to sell their bodies. But it's not the old profession of the ancients or the medievals. It's the it's it's now a. Uh, uh, has to follow the logic of the capitalist money economy of profit and loss. So it's it's something distinctive that is these these new ways in which uh, old values and old ways of being and acting um, have to be um, inserted into the the relentless logic of money exchanges. Yeah, so going into the last chapter, there's a couple last figures you talk about. Um, one is uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, and he and Marx are both uh, at times interested in questions of racial oppression and marginalization and try to understand how that fits into uh, a particular, the particular social order of capital accumulation and extrapolation. Uh, could you maybe speak to kind of what you see as the parallel there um, in terms of how they think about what race is and how to understand it within uh, class struggle. Yeah. Marx is often um, uh, criticized for having a certain like uh, inability to see or uh, blank on questions of race, but he's actually 
very much uh, engaged with them uh, as, as those questions posed, were posed at the time. Remember he's writing Capital, the first edition of Capital, uh, of Capital Volume One comes out in 1867. And Marx is writing uh, editorials for the New York, uh, um, uh, Tribu the New York Tribune um, from 1852 to 1862, and he's still keeping up on the um, on the events of the Civil War and on the struggles uh, between North and South in the United States. And he sees this as obviously a race a racial struggle and also as a a worker struggle. Du Bois born you know, in 1868, the year after Capital uh, was published. Um, du Bois grows up in the North and he's experiencing these, these dynamics of, uh, of, of racial divide and tension. And partly through his own travels and work in the South uh, as a young student as, and as a young professor. And he sees one of the great missed opportunities for, uh, for American, um, you know, for American progress and for uh, for its for the kind of promise that it hopes for the world in this Freedmen's Bureau of the uh, of, uh, that was formed after the Civil War, which promised to help train workers, uh, black newly freed slaves, uh, to work for the industrial economy um, and to work for a wage or to get their fifty acres and a mule or something. Um, but that really didn't work out, and he and he has a very succinct but really powerful chapter in The Souls of Black Folk, uh, where he discusses that failure in uh, 1903. But it's really the work of his, it's really uh, uh, Du Bois's really uh, great claim to, uh, to and scholarly contribution as an historian of American Reconstruction in his work, um, uh, Black Reconstruction in America, published in 1835. And what's really striking about that book is how explicitly he takes up capital and the themes of surplus value and the ways in which white and black workers are set against each other by the industrial north and the agricultural south, right? Um, and, and so it's a divide and conquer tactic in the interests of capital. So he explicitly uses the theory of surplus value uh, to analyze this, this uh, this tension and con racial conflict at the heart of the workers' movement in the early decades of uh, the 20th century. I, I found that really interesting. I couldn't go into it in much detail, but uh, it certainly is worth notice, noting as uh, uh, another dimension of the uptake of capital by the second generation of classical sociologists. So a last figure you discuss is Sigmund Freud, who has been brought into dialogue with Marx and Marxism quite a lot. Um, what interested me and kind of caught me off guard was that you actually are interested in colonialism as a point of intersection between the two. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to kind of this left out of left field connection you find between the two orientations. You know, what do you see going on there? In parallel. Yeah. And fair enough to call it kind of like coming out of left field. Uh, one of the things I noticed in reading um, the final two chapters of Capital, which did appear as two separate sections in the first edition. So Marx does mark them off as, I, I would say, two alternative endings for this great story that he's telling in Capital. Um, one of them is, uh, is, is, uh, is a story about colonialism. The last chapter of Capital is called the, uh, the modern theory of colonialism. Now it's not his theory of colonialism. It's his critique of this guy named Wakefield and his project, his idea to, um, uh, to uh, um, uh, uh, provide a buttress and a uh, theoretical support for systematic colonization of North America Australia, and Australia, okay? including British North America, Canada, what became Canada. And Marx says that this is kind of a dream world. He uses that word Traumreich, and I found that so telling, right? That this, this idea of the American dream or the colonial dream that, you know, we could have our freedom and our, uh, we could even, you know, uh, be a homesteaders and everything, even at the cost of um, displacing and even exterminating indigenous populations. Marx is explicit about that. I found this, I, I, I found that his language there uh, really interesting. 
And so that gave me the idea to return to my graduate studies in social and political thought at York University um, with, my, with my mentor, John O'Neill, who's written on Freud and think, well, could I actually engage in a kind of interpretation of the colonialist dream, uh, drawing on the, uh, uh, Freud's um, uh, technique for dream interpretation? Like what, how could we unpack say the components of this dream? What would its unconscious or even conscious wishes be? What kind of dream work is, uh, is being done in the service of this colonialist dream? And that led me to open up um, uh, Freud's interpretation of dreams. And what's really striking, and I had noticed this studying it as a graduate student, but didn't quite know what to do with it. What's so striking is how prevalent and central the language of work is, right? I would say about half the text or at least a third of it is an elaboration on what Freud calls the dream work, Traumarbeit. And he even in the final chapter summarizes that in terms of the dream, the dream's three components of the capitalist, which, um, which draws on the day's residues and day's thoughts and so, or sorry, the entrepreneur that does, draws on dream, on the day's uh, residues, you know, things that have happened in the day. The unconscious wishes though, have to be provided by what he calls the capitalist. So an entrepreneur needs a capitalist, right? Just as a dream needs some kind of like unconscious wishes. And then these are kind of like, um, woven or brought together in the dream factory of the dream work of, in particular, condensation and displacement of ideas and images. And I thought, I think that's, I, th I think that's a real interesting, um, unintended, of course, point of contact between Freud's interpret interpretation of dreams and uh, Marx's uh, own critique of the prevailing theories of colonialism of his day. Yeah, it was a really interesting connection. So you've put a lot on the table for us, but I'm wondering if we could then kind of bring capital into the 21st century. So given everything that you're kind of trying to do, you're kind of trying to get us to read capital afresh, kind of with a new set of eyes. What do you hope people turning to the text today might get that they might have maybe been missing previously or misunderstanding, given their kind of presuppositions that they're bringing in? Yeah. I think one of the first things I want people to take away, well, first of all, my, my project is really to get people back to reading Capital, right? Um, it's not so much, it's, it's only secondarily to, to look at the dialogue between, say, the second generation of classical sociologists um, I'm, uh, and Capital. In some ways, I'm saying we've sort of been blind, been blinkered, or been uh, uh, our focus has been narrowed too much um, by taking them at their taking these second generation classical sociologists, which have been many ways repeated over and over again uh, up into the 21st century. You know that Marx was a reductionist materialist, so he didn't really have a sociology. He has a pretty crude um, theory of class conflict or class struggle and that um, he doesn't even have a very well-developed uh, theory of revolution, et cetera. So I'm trying to say, look, no, no, let's look at capital with fresh eyes, not ignoring these great points or insights, uh, original insights of later thinkers and of what we need to be looking at today. And for me, it kind of comes down to, you know, treating and rereading capital as in part a literary text. That is, it has a narrative structure, with a beginning and a middle and an end. At the same time, it is theoretically and scientifically systematic, it has a logic, and he's thinking and working through that logic. Some of that comes from Hegel, some of that comes from his own uh, sense of uh, the Hegel being the great idealist philosopher of the previous generation when he was writing. But it also comes from what he's learning from the political economists, this kind of systematic investigations of the, the social scientists of his own day. And then I'm saying it also, you know, we have to acknowledge that it's a, it's, it's a, it's politically incomplete, right? Like the Communist Manifesto, it can only offer a call to action. It can't actually offer a detailed plan of action or, you know, uh, 
uh, a sketch of the fantasy or the utopia of the communist society. And if you're looking for that, you're looking in the wrong place, right? It can't be that kind of book, but it can offer glimpses and, and um, uh, uh, images of, of some of what, of what a non-capitalist or alternative uh, social order might be from the one that we've that we have with uh, the capitalist mode of production. So those are those are the things that I'm trying to say. This is a work to to think of from these uh, from this aesthetic, scientific, and political uh, point of view. Yeah, if I can kind of ask a sort of follow up to that. So you're uh, making it clear that capital is not itself the revolution, but might in some way kind of help inform those who are trying to help us get beyond capitalism to a better, more just society. Even if it doesn't provide a detailed roadmap, you still, I would imagine, think it is worth reading, even for, you know, just activists who are kind of talking about how they can, you know, affect local or small change and kind of build that up into something larger. You know, what do you see as the relationship between this very long, very dense text and actual political action? Um, not that every activist needs to read it, but some are kind of looking for uh, a, a better, more rigorous perspective, a way of understanding what it is they're doing. Um, yeah. Could you maybe speak to that? Like, how do you see this book relating to praxis? Yeah, it's 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 a, obviously an, an almost impossible question because um, Mark struggled. That is his wager, right? And it is like, okay, I'm betting you all looking at this text or looking at the points I'm making to that you can act on this, that this can actually inspire you to do something, right? I can't tell you exactly what to do, but obviously, you know, where, where my heart lies, he's telling us, you know, that my commitments are to the International Working Men's Association, to the struggles of the working classes, right? Um, so clearly that's where his sympathies and his, uh, uh, political convictions lie, right? It doesn't only come down to that because he sees that the system can be restructured, be um, uh, can be rendered more humane, right? So I even end the book uh, invoking my, my mentor, John O'Neill's uh, book called Civic Capitalism, which sounds like a contradiction in, term, in terms, but really the wager there is, could capitalism become more humane by, be, by providing for uh, a basic income for health, education, and welfare? Can it actually be not just tamed, but humanized, right? Even as it extracts surplus value or engages in the primitive accumulation of land, labor, and life, right? Uh, can it still be pressed into the service of, of, human, of, of, of human needs? Can it reduce the increasing and extraordinary inequalities between the super rich and the poorest of the poor. Um, I think that's, that's, that's what's on the agenda uh, in capital itself uh, as, uh, as at least an interim or an initial uh, set of practices or actions that we could take. That's evident from the text. Okay. So that brings us through the text itself. So as a last question, I always like to ask, what, if anything, are you working on now? Can we look forward to any new projects, maybe another book somewhere on the horizon, anything? Yes. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sort of doing my long march through the classics. <laughs> so I did, a, my very first book was on Marx's Grunders, so those notebooks that were preparatory to his great masterpiece, the one he actually published, um, Capital. My next one was on Weber. A third one was on Zimmel. And now a fourth one is really inspired by Durkheim. So I want to pick up on those themes of collective consciousness, of social solidarity, and globalize them. One of the limitations of the German thinkers um, that I think we have to acknowledge is their, their relative Eurocentrism. I mean, I call it a methodological uh, Eurocentrism in, in Weber, but it's still, it's still a limitation, right? Even if you're just doing it for methodological purposes. I think Durkheim in some ways uh, came a little bit further than, than the other classic classical sociologists in breaking through that, that um, Eurocentrism. And that was mainly in his final book, 
um, the elementary forms of religious life, which takes the example of the Australian Aboriginal tribes and the reports from the colonial ethnologists and others in, uh, in Australia. So I actually think we're getting the beginnings in classical sociology of what Raywin Collin has called uh, Southern theory. And so I want to do that through my own some empirical studies, which I've been doing uh, since 2010 here in Vancouver in the downtown east side, which is uh, called Canada's poorest postal code. So it's a site of, uh, of um, extraordinary poverty relative to the affluence of the rest of the city. So I've been working with students in an ethnographic field school there, and I've been doing some first-hand ethnography with our community partners and the organizations there. And on the other side, the global south, um, I've been teaching a global seminar with a colleague in philosophy um, in rural Guatemala. So those are kind of become the two ethnographic sites where I can really test and explore the possibilities and the limitations of this Durkheimian theory, global theory, I would say, of social solidarity, or what in the in the you know the the rhetoric of the United Nations might be called global citizenship that might think and act and work beyond the boundaries of the nation state. So that's that's where I'm trying to go with this uh, with this third project. It probably won't look anything like these close textual literary readings that I've done of uh, the German thinkers, but um, hopefully it'll uh, make a, also make some contribution. Yeah, sounds interesting. You've got a lot to work with. So uh, Thomas Kempel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Stephen. It was a pleasure.